one happy holiday or you may be like me I fell asleep about a dozen times between 9.30 when I got went to bed and 11 o'clock when they finally stopped shooting off fireworks. It was um, love the, the fourth for a lot of reasons, um, not the least of my lovely bride over here. Tuesday on the fourth, you know, it's a smart man that gets married on a very prominent date so he never forgets his anniversary. But come Tuesday, we will be married 36 years. Amen. Yes. It's a testament to her patience. <laughs> I figured, uh, figured the ladies might join in there more than the men. Well, let's, um, let's take a moment and pray, and then we're going to launch right off into the Word. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to um, search out your heart, to search out your will, to change how we see ourselves, to conform our viewpoint to your viewpoint, Father. And I just ask today that you guide me, help me to emphasize the things that need to be emphasized and that you help each of us to have ears to hear and a mind to comprehend your will for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to continue with this um, series I started. It's been over a month ago on the battle for your identity. And you're going to have to pardon me this morning. I... Uh, had one of those rare experiences for me. I started wearing glasses when I was a seventh grader, and I went to my eye doctor this week for my annual checkup, and my eyes are have improved in the last few years to the point where I don't, uh, well, technically I still don't have 20-20, but when you've come from 2200 to 2040, it's like, wow, this is, this is just great. Unfortunately, I'm at that age where I still have to have the bifocal portion, and I haven't made it to um, the optician to to just get my, you know, just the the reading glasses portion. So I have to go back and forth because I'm bound to determine 50 years long enough to wear glasses. I'm done. I'm actually <clears throat> I'm going to go out and buy my very first pair of standalone sunglasses. I have never bought a pair of sunglasses because you just you can't wear them when you wear prescriptions. Not and I've been to the point pretty much all my life where you put them. That's the first thing you do in the morning, so you can see to walk. And uh, it's just a testament to God's healing power. Amen. Well, we started this. I don't know several weeks ago, and I want to just touch on a, a couple of scriptures. And, and, but even before I get to that, here, here's the premise of what I'm trying to, to minister. Jesus has said, in fact, Paul said it in the book of Ephesians. He said that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, if they're all ours, then why don't we walk in them? 
And I will be honest with you, the, the, for me, the number one reason I see in my life and I see it in other believers' lives that we don't walk in the blessings of God more than we do is that we don't see ourselves as God sees us. We, we looked at it, um, uh, Romans 8, verse 6. Paul said there, to be carnally minded is death. When you focus in on carnal things, when you focus on things that are not eternal, when you focus in on things, all of your shortcomings, all of your faults, and believe me, we all have shortcomings, we all have faults, we all have areas that we need to improve. I don't care how conformed you are to God's will, you have not arrived. You've always gonna, you always will have room to grow. But when God says that you are holy, that you are forgiven, that you are righteous, then you are a fool to disagree with Him. When it comes right down to it, anything that God says, this is yours. This is what Jesus paid the price for on the cross. Here it is. It's a free gift. Paul said in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16, For the gospel is the power of God, resulting in salvation. That salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. That salvation is a transformed life. He, wants to, he has transformed you on the inside. Now it's a matter, Paul continues it, that, that thought, or completes that thought in Romans chapter 12, where he says, we need to renew our minds. We need to quit being conformed to the image of this world and be transformed by the renewing of, by the renewing of our mind. Why? Because we think, <clears throat> I'm weak. I'm a beggar. I'm a worm. I know all my faults, believe me. I've had people try to insult me, <laughs> and, I, and some of them do a pretty good job. But to be honest with you, I could come up with a lot worse insults for me because I know a lot more of my faults than you know because I don't expose all of my faults and all of my foibles to everybody. For one thing, what good would it do? I mean, if you, if you have a heartbeat, if you're still in a fleshly body, you have faults. You still haven't arrived. But we need to get into agreement with what God says about us. And we, we touched on at the very beginning, 1 Corinthians 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. This is the same Paul that said we have been um, not only given all things that pertain to life and godliness, but we have been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. And yet to Timothy, he says, lay hold on eternal life. Does that mean Timothy wasn't saved? No, he was saved. Timothy was, was in the kingdom of God, but he was telling Timothy all of these things that Christ died for to give you access to, you need to reach in and grab them and hold on to them, lay hold on them. It's like having a, a bank account, but being afraid to withdraw any money. I've known a lot of people, <clears throat> especially in my father's generation, 
came up through the depression, depression babies, that it didn't matter how much money they had, they wanted to hoard everything. Because they had known real want. And so they were always afraid that want was going to come right back to their door. Why do we have that mindset? Because we're, we're not identifying with what Christ has provided for us. We're identifying with what the world has done to us, what we have learned. And the, the, let's face it, the world is great at teaching you lessons. It will teach you lessons that you're not good enough. It'll teach you lessons that, that you know, what God says isn't true. We looked at uh, the two basic temptations that there are in the world, Genesis 3.1. Has God indeed said, what Satan said to um, Eve, can you trust God's word? Is that really what he said? Are you sure about that? You sure that applies to you? You sure he meant what he said? Then the other one was when Satan confronted Jesus during the temptation in the wilderness. He said, if you are the Son of God. He knew that Jesus would agree with the word, so he, he tempted him to start identifying with his circumstances. And during that temptation, believe me, Jesus had some opportunities to identify with want. He had been out in that desert fasting. Now, we don't know if the temptations took place on the first day, the tenth day, the fortieth day. But I guarantee you, if it was past two or three days, Jesus was in some want. In particular, if it was in the last week or so, you fast 40 days, you will be hungry. And he tested him and said, really? This human body you're in, are you really the Son of God? If you are, then why are you in such want? Why are you in such need? Why has your Father driven you out in this wilderness to suffer like this? Well, Jesus had enough sense. He identified, He knew who He was. Sorry to say He knew who He was in Christ, but He knew who He was on the inside of Himself that even though His body was in want, His circumstances were dire, he knew that his father had sent him there for a reason, and he was going to fulfill that reason. So he just rebuked the, 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 the enemy, and he had to flee. We need to have that same mindset. Amen? Now, we just quoted a minute ago, uh, Romans 1, verse 16. That is the start. In fact, let's just go over there. Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, this is where we start our Christian life. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, or resulting in salvation, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul starts out this whole conversation with, with the Roman church. He said, look, I understand that that, that this gospel, this good news about what Jesus did when he went to the cross, died, was buried, resurrected, that is the power that's going to bring you salvation. And then he immediately, in verse 18, started going through this list of, of moral failures in the world, all the way through chapter 2, and <clears throat> said, look, you're saved 
But these are things you need to avoid. Or if, if another way of putting it, um, but let's face it, when you get saved, you don't instantly arrive. It's not like every problem that you had as a sinner is cleared up the day after you get born again. You're going to have to deal with some issues. I've known people that were drug addicts, they got saved, and man, the, the, the desire for drugs left them the instant they got saved, and they never desired them at all. And I've known people that got saved, and they fought and had to fight and fight and fight to get rid of those desires. Just because you got saved doesn't mean that you're automatically cleaned up in your lifestyle. So we need, Paul's very clear here, we don't need to make excuses about overcoming our flesh. We need to just start overcoming our flesh. But the problem we have is for most Christians, and this is my experience, if it's not yours, then you can just set this one aside. But my experience is for most Christians, in their opinion, looking at themselves and looking at, 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 at the church as a whole, getting saved and cleaning up your life and living a good moral life is arriving. When, you're, when, when you have accepted Christ and you know you're going to heaven and you have dealt with your flesh and your flesh is under control and you're living a moral life, now I'm, I'm, I've reached pretty much the pinnacle of Christianity. And the problem with that is not that we don't need to get born again and not that we don't need to live a good moral life and control our flesh, but that's the floor, not the ceiling. That's the beginning of the life, not the end. The end is to, to go, uh, Jesus said it in Matthew 28, when He gave the Great Commission, go and make disciples. I've given you authority. Later on, he's going to, to, to tell, after the resurrection, he's going to tell the disciples, <clears throat> don't do anything till you go and just sit in Jerusalem and wait, and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will baptize you, and he will anoint you for service. And it's the service that is our calling, not the living, the good life. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not discounting morality, but I know a lot of people that are very moral and they're not very spiritual. They just live for fleshly. They think they have pretty much arrived and they've just quit striving to move on. We need to, to strive to go, Mark, we looked at this, Mark 16, verse 17 and 18, Mark records when Jesus gave the Great Commission, He said, these signs will follow those who believe. He did not say, these signs will follow preachers and pastors and evangelists and teachers and prophets and apostles. He said, if you are a believer, you ought to have signs and wonders in your life. How many of us have signs and wonders in our lives? There are a couple of reasons we don't. One is that we don't expect them, usually because we don't think we're worthy for God to manifest Himself through us like that. 
And God, if, he, if God was looking for perfect vessels before he could do anything, the first generation of Christianity would have been it. The 11 disciples, it would have ended right there because none of them were worthy vessels. Every one of them, no exceptions, every one of them walked away from Jesus. When Jesus was, was resurrected, um, they were all in hiding. We, we looked at it the last time. When, when Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus, and I forgot the, the other lady, one of Mary's sisters I think it was, when they went to the tomb, there was an angel there, and he, he said, you've come looking for Jesus, but I'm telling you, he's not here. Go and tell the disciples that he's, been, that he's risen from the dead. And all three of them went and hid. And then later, at least it's implied, Mary Magdalene went back to the tomb by herself. She met a man there. She thought it was the gardener. And she spoke to him. And she said, where have you taken the master's body? She didn't recognize that it was Jesus until he spoke. She didn't recognize his body, but when he spoke, she recognized his voice and the authority in his voice. And then she went to the disciples and said, he's risen. And this is the Robert's paraphrase. But they looked at her and said, Mary, I think your demons are back. Because <laughs> none of them believed. In fact, it was so bad that when Jesus finally did appear to the eleven in person, he didn't walk in and say, oh, bless your all's heart. I should have explained this a little better. I should have talked, made it a little plainer so you just wouldn't be caught up in fear. I know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you guys so bad. No, he walked in and he rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of their heart. And that, the Greek word there for rebuked is a very strong word. It means to bring shame, and it means to, to literally to, to ream them out. He let them have it. Basically, he walked in and, and modern vernacular said, What is the problem? What are you guys up to? I told you all this. You've had people come and tell you that, I'm, that I've risen from the, from the grave and none of you are buying it. You're all sitting in here cowering like a bunch of cowards. What is your problem? He was upset. Why? Because they didn't believe it. Now, that is where our fight comes in. We have to, to deal with unbelief and hardness of heart. Hardness of heart goes back to Mark chapter 4, the, the parable of the sower, the different soils. The only difference between those soils is how the person, because they're not, it's an illustration, it's a metaphor. Jesus wasn't talking about soil. He was talking about people's hearts. And the only difference between the, the, the rocky soil and the good soil is what the person has done with their heart. How is that person, uh, how do they receive the word? What do they do in their own mind to make themselves more receptive to what God says and to accept it and, and let it grow? 
Well, we, we need to do that, but we just looked at it in Timothy. It takes some faith to do that. You're not going to just, that's not just going to happen on its own. There's a fight involved in maturing spiritually. There is a battle that's going to have to go on because you have an enemy. And, and to be honest with you, as much as Satan tries to oppose all of that, sometimes the worst enemy you have is your own carnal stinking thinking. You just have your mindset that this is how the world is. This is how I am. I've lived with me for 65 years. I know how I work. And sometimes you just get sick and tired of dealing with the same issues over and over and over again. Well, why do you deal with the same issues over and over again? Because most of the issues that you get to deal with multiple times, it's because that's where your natural weaknesses are. So it may not manifest itself in the exact same circumstances, but it's going to be similar circumstances all the time. Where you have strengths, the enemy generally not going to attack you in, in your areas of strength. But he will attack you in your areas of weakness. And he'll come after you and he'll keep going until, you've, until you finally begin to rely on, on the gospel, the power of God, to restore you. Jesus said, let the weak say I'm strong. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians, Where I, when I am weak, then I am strong. How could you do that? It was like the paradox pastor was talking about earlier. When I am weak, I'm strong because I know in my weakness I can't do this and I rely on Christ's strength to do it in me. It's, it's not me that's doing it. It's Christ in me that's doing it. But part of that is I have to, I have to quit looking at my natural circumstances and what's going on around me and continue to look at the Word and what does the Word say about it. Let me go through some of this. Um, let's go to... Um, Mark 16, and we've looked at a little bit of this. Mark 16, chapter, or verse 1. Here, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome came to anoint the body of Jesus. And in verse 7, they saw the, the, um, the, the angel, and the angel said, Go and tell his disciples and Peter. We dealt with that later. Peter, at least mentally, had already just he disqualified himself. He wasn't a disciple anymore. Judas is out of the picture because Judas knew he couldn't be forgiven. You realize that when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the price for Judas's sin? Judas could have asked for forgiveness and been right there in heaven. Instead, he went out and looked at himself and was so full of guilt, so full of condemnation, he hung himself. I had a, a, a pastor friend, this is, I'm going back 20 years, he got so burned out in the ministry, so condemned over some of the things that were, were going on in his life, he literally went out in his backyard and hung himself. Committed suicide. It's a full gospel, tongue-talking, Bible-believing pastor. Hung himself. How do you get there? You don't get there all in one giant step. You get there by entertaining small thoughts and small thoughts and small thoughts, and those thoughts grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. Well, you get the other way the same way. You grow in your knowledge of Christ by conquering one little small thing in your life and then conquering another thing and another thing until you get your, your thought life conformed to how He sees you, 
And even then, you will be tempted to step away from it because I'll guarantee you a lot of Christians will look at you and say, well, you're just arrogant. You think you're God. No, I don't think I'm God. But I do think I have the anointing that God's put on me. He said we will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. He said we have authority in this world. So when I come up with someone that, that is, um, that's sick, my first thought is, I need to lay hands on them. If I'm not physically present, then my words have, have power. The, the centurion told Jesus, he said, you don't need to go into my house and lay hands on my servant. Just speak the word and he will be healed. Well, Jesus has said, as, in this, or, or, um, as I am, so are you in this world. It's in 1 John chapter 4. Well, if, if he's made me just like him, then when someone has a need, I can take the word and speak it into their life. Amen? But do we, do we really think in those lines? When you're presented with someone's need and they have a desperate need, do you think, oh wow, this is not going to end well. Walk into a hospital room and someone said, well, you have stage four cancer. And you got a month or two, that's it. Do you walk in to pray for them thinking, well, I'm going to lay hands on them, but I doubt anything's going to happen. Or do you walk in there saying, look, Jesus is here. And He's anointed me. And He's told me personally to come lay hands on you. And you are going to recover. Now, that takes some boldness. Well, brother, what if it doesn't, what if it doesn't manifest? What if they die? What chance do they have if you don't try? What if it only happens once every thousand times? Are you willing to go through 999 times when you were embarrassed and you don't understand why it didn't happen so that you can do it one time and somebody will latch on to it and they will walk away healed? I guarantee you, most people, they'll try it once and if it doesn't work, well, that healing stuff, that's not for today. I remember a very prominent, and I'm not going to name him, very prominent minister, believed in healing, preached healing, and his wife got cancer. And they believed for her to be healed, and she died. And as soon as she died, man, he got on his national platform and he said, healing is not for today. Healing is not for today. Not one scripture changed. Not one. Well, why did she die? I don't have any idea. Don't know. Don't want to try to figure it out. It's not my business. If it was my business, Jesus would tell me what it was. And then he would also swear me to secrecy because I don't need to blab other people's secrets. Let me just meddle right here for a minute. Sometimes people, and by people, I'm talking about us, we want God to show us things and share with us how to minister. What's the root cause of the problem going on in this person's life? And He will not tell you. Why? Because He knows He can't trust you with the truth. Because you'll blab it to the world. Better preaching than you're saying amen. Anyway, Mark chapter 16. These ladies go hide. Verse 11, Mary went back to see Jesus 
And he said, go tell my disciples. Then she went. Once she had the word from him, she went and told the disciples they didn't believe. Two of the disciples went on the road to Emmaus, and they saw that it was Jesus. They went back to the disciples and told them they still didn't believe. Verse 14, when Jesus showed up, he rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of their heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. They did not believe the word that was brought to them. Now, I've never seen the risen Christ. Never. Not in a vision. He hadn't taken me to heaven. But I believe. Why? Because I have people's word for it. I have the word right here. Witnesses say in the word, the written word, that Jesus is resurrected. I believe it. Jesus had to rebuke Thomas because Thomas wouldn't believe. He said, I'm not going to believe till, till I can put my hands in the holes in his hands and in the hole in his side. And Jesus appeared to him. He said, Thomas, here I am. Put your fingers in here. And Thomas hit his knees and said, my Lord, my God. He worshipped him. And he said, blessed are you, Thomas. You have believed because you saw but more blessed are those that will believe because of the word. Now, we all get on down to Thomas, but you also have to realize Thomas took the gospel to what is modern-day India. And there was one major city, and, and the church history says that the, there was some need in that city, but the river was flooded, and Thomas walked across the river. He walked on water to get into the, to the city. And those people seeing him walk across a flooded river knew that God had sent him and he preached the gospel and had a huge revival until persecution arised and they decided to kill him. And he died confessing that Jesus was Lord. Just because we get the right image doesn't mean that everything's just going to run you know, perfect and our, our, our life will be blessed, but believe me, those blessings come with persecution. Now, the best picture we have of how unbelief works, how doubt and unbelief work, is, and I'm, I've got three passages that I want to take together. Um, first of all, let's go to Luke chapter 4. And then we're also going to look at uh, Matthew and Mark, Ma Matthew 13 and Mark 6, where they also record this very same incident. This is when Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth. But in, in Luke chapter 4, Luke gives the most detail, which is not uncommon. Luke gave a lot of detail that other gospel writers don't. But in verse 16, it says, So he, meaning Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, this tells you right here that Jesus wasn't just a wandering rabbi. He was recognized as being a teacher. Not anyone walked into a synagogue and was handed the book to read the law. And in a synagogue, the Torah is revered. You don't mess with the Torah. You go over to that cabinet where the Torah, where the scrolls are kept, and you start messing around with it, those people, they'll jerk you out and stone you. 
They, they, not anyone or not just anyone can do that. So they welcomed him. They recognized him as a teacher and as a rabbi. And he didn't just grab it, open it, and read the first thing that came to mind. It says that he opened the book, he found the place. And he went and found this Old Testament out of scripture out of Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it says that he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He just claimed to be the Messiah right there. Notice verse 22 though, because this, this is not going to end well. Before this is all over, they're going to try to go th pitch him off a cliff. But in verse 22, notice it says, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. If you look at, at Matthew's account in Matthew 13, um, 54, at the end of the verse, it said, Where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? Uh, Mark's account says after he had read this scripture, it says, And many hearing him, or many hearing, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Now these are not works that he's performing right there, right then. These are works that they've heard he's done in Capernaum. Because here in a few minutes we're going to read, he could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. But at this point in the story, everybody's happy with him. And everybody is astonished because when he spoke, his words had authority. There was an anointing on Jesus when he spoke everything, but in particular when he spoke Scripture. And that anointing got off in these people, and there was an opportunity for them to embrace him as the Messiah. They were amazed, they were astonished, and faith was there, and all they had to do was step over into it. But now we're going to see unbelief. Unbelief, that word there, it's the Greek word apistos. The Greek letter alpha in front of the word pistis, which means faith. Everywhere you read in the New Testament where it talks about faith, it's using some form of the word pistis. Pistis, pistoa, pistua. There are many, whether it's a noun, a verb, how it's being used. There's many forms of it, but it's all faith. When you stick that alpha in front of it, it means negative. It's where we get un. Unbelief literally means they changed. Rather than believing the right thing, they started believing the wrong thing. In this case, what was it? They said here, I'm going back to Luke's account. And they said, notice, it always involves mouth. Lord have mercy. 
When God first starts dealing with you about your confession, you're going to have days, weeks, maybe even months where you're just afraid to say anything. At least you say something wrong. And that's not a good way to live. But until you get yourself trained, sometimes saying, you know, your, my mama used to say it. Probably every one of your mamas said it. You can't say something good, don't say anything. Well, if you're not going to say anything good about your circumstances, about yourself, rather than complaining about how bad it is, just use the 11th commandment. Shut thy mouth. But what did they do? They said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, well, that's Luke. Very similar account in Matthew. Is this not the carpenter's son? And is not his mother Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get, these, get all these things? So they were offended at him. His words were anointed and they were ready to jump in there and agree with him. And then suddenly they remembered, that's Joe's boy. That's Mary's son. And we know his brothers and we know his sisters. Who does he think he is? Their natural mind just took over. And they started believing what they, what, how they knew Jesus was. Now, Jesus led a perfect life when he was a child. And he, you know, you go back to my hometown, people that haven't, you know, had any contact with me for the last 40 years, they're going to give you a report about me that's probably not going to be very pleasant. Because I was a rounder when I left town. I mean, my reputation wasn't real great. And deservedly so. But if you haven't been with me for the last 40 years, you have no idea where I've I've come from or how far I've come. So when I go back to my hometown, in fact I did, I remember, I think it was my 20th, 25th high school reunion. I went back and they found out I was a pastor after they got up off the floor I had one, one of my very good friends from high school, we used to run around all the time. Um, he looked right straight at me. He said, it'd be interesting for me to see the kind of church you pastor. <laughs> he could not envision me any way than how he knew I was as a teenager and as in, in my 20s. That's all they saw. They saw the man I used to be. I had a similar experience um, when I first uh, decided I was going to go into full-time ministry. I went to Southern Seminary for a while in Louisville. And I had the very first day I met a guy. He was a, an Army veteran, and he was there on um, his GI Bill. And his, he and his wife and kids used to hang around with Gina and I and our kids, and we fellowshiped a lot together because we just we hit it off. But he was Baptist through and through. Nothing wrong with Baptist. I was raised Baptist. Thank God for the Baptist. You know, there's more Baptists than there are people. But, but and, and I praise God for that background. But he was just straight down the road. He didn't believe in tongues. He didn't believe in, in healing. He didn't believe in anything other than you show up for church, you sing three hymns, take an offering, preach a 30-minute sermon, go home. That's it. That was his experience. And 
after I had been in the ministry, I'd already been to Rama, been back several years, he tracked me down. And he said, look, he had been a pastor in, I want to say either New Mexico or Arizona, one of those southwest states, and he was heading back up to the northeastern part of the country to pastor a new church. And he said, we're going to be coming through Louisville. We want to stop and visit your church. I said, okay. And the church I was associate pastor in, we were, we were wildfire. I mean, man, we ran the pews. We, it, was, whew, it was wild in there at times. And I'm thinking, I, <laughs> I hope he can handle this. And he walked in, he and his wife walked in, and I'm telling you, we were stayed. We were calm. We were Baptist compared to this guy. He was the wildest Pentecostal I had ever met in my life. But in my mind, he was still that guy I knew in Southern Seminary. But he had learned and changed a few things in his life and in his lifestyle. And I'm not saying one's bad, one's good, each to their own. Amen? But I, didn't, I assigned him how I remembered him. And we need to be careful that we don't do that with, with the Word. We put ourselves in remembrance of who we used to be rather than who we are because Jesus says this is who you are now and you remember the old you that's dead and gone. But that's who you remember and that's who you believe because that's who you identify with. And notice what happened to him. Is this not Joseph's son? And surely you say to me, this is Jesus. And Jesus had this way, you know, when, when he got the huge crowds, he had fed the 5,000. I mean, he had them by the thousands following him. And one day he turned to him, he says, look, you want to follow me? You want to be a disciple of mine? Then you've got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. <laughs> that was a sermon. They left by the thousands. He was left with the twelve. And then he turned to them, he said, you guys want to go too? I, you, th you think that pastor and I can be rough? Brother, some of you are going to be real surprised when you go to heaven and you're, you're ready to meet the meek, mild Lamb of God and you're going to come right square to the line of Judah. Because Jesus wasn't always meek and mild. Remember, when he cleansed the temple, he sat down and wove a whip. He didn't lose his temper. He did every bit of that on purpose. He wove a whip. He kicked over tables. He smacked people. He knocked people down. He could get rough when he needed to get rough. He looked at the Pharisees and says, You whitewashed sepulchers. You whitewashed tombstones. You hypocrites. You dogs. You snakes. He was not, in, he was not opposed to name-calling when name-calling needed to be done. But, but here, he doubles down. He said to them, Surely you would say this, to, this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. Hey, we heard you doing all kinds of miracles over here in this other town. Why don't you do some miracles for us? They, went, they wanted a minstrel show. They won't prove who you are. You just claim to be the Messiah. Let's see your stuff, buddy. So what does he do? He goes through in verse 24 through verse 27, and he said, look, when Elijah was a prophet, he did two 
prominent miracles. One was to um, go to Zarephath and provide her with supernatural food and abundance to get her through a famine. And the other was to cleanse Naaman the Syrian. He told him there are only two people that Elijah really ministered to during this time period, and they were both Gentiles. Now you tell a Jew that I'm, I'm following Elijah. I'm just going to minister to the Gentiles. Forget you people. That's when they were ready. They were enraged. It says, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. They were hot. And they tried to take him to the cliff, throw him off. We've heard enough. What did Jesus do, though? First of all, that was their unbelief. They knew the old Jesus. When he spoke the truth, well, he spoke truth both times, but when he spoke a pleasant truth and he, he quoted Isaiah and said, these, this verse is fulfilled in your hearing today, and he gave them an opportunity to respond. They rejected that because they remembered who he was. And then when he said, okay, you don't want that side of me, let's have the wrath side. I'll go to the Gentiles. You don't want to accept me? Then we're going to... It's a, it, it was a, he was prescient there. You Jews reject me? I got a whole Gentile world out there that's begging to hear the gospel. They're, they would welcome a Savior. He's predicting the future. <coughs> Excuse me. We see this, this, this same pattern of unbelief. They, they didn't want to, to fulfill what Jesus, where He wanted to take them. But what was His answer? It says that He went round about. He took Nazareth as His starting point. And it says that, that He went about and taught, preached, teached, and healed. What's the answer to our unbelief? What's our answer when, when we get so focused in on my circumstances? Everything's falling apart. I don't, not only do I not have any money in my check in a checkbook, I got hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. What's the answer to that? The answer is to, to preach and teach and heal that situation with the Word. What about when God says, I'm healed and I've got pain and I've got symptoms and they're real? then I need to preach, teach, and heal that situation. I need to go back and say, Jesus, what did you provide for me in your death, your burial, your resurrection? I've said it before and I'll say it again. There is a life of suffering that God's called us to. But He has not called us to suffer what He suffered as our substitute. We only suffer what He suffered as our example. That's persecution. That's being rejected. It's being reviled. All of those things will be part of your life, especially if you start to step out and proclaim what He says is true about you. And the sad part is, some of the, the, the worst persecution you're going to get is going to come from other Christians. Wow, you just think you're God. No, but I am anointed. The natural mind will, will try to, to reason its way. 
through these situations. But we're not called to focus in on what the natural mind wants to do. We're supposed to focus in on what Jesus says. Now, there are a couple of ways when it says that he would preach, teach, and heal. You can, in our day and age, you don't even have to wait till Sunday to get, to get preached to. Go get on YouTube. Now, I will tell you, finding preaching on YouTube is kind of like watching Christian TV. You got to be a little bit careful because there's all kinds of junk on there too. But there's all kinds of anointed sermons that you can listen to, that you can, can, they will build you up. They will preach, put faith in your life. You need to get your Bible out. I mean, I, I love the fact that we put the verses up on the screen. But there's a part of me that doesn't like that and wants to just roll it up. Quit doing that. Because to be honest with you, you need to have your Bible in your lap. Because it's one thing to see that scripture up on the screen. It's another to open your Bible and see it in your Bible. And underline it and make a note in your Bible. And then go back through the week. Mark those pages and go back and review those. And say, this is really part of who God's made me and how He's made me and what He's given me. All of those things are required. And then the healing can come. When it says He preached, He, he preached and teach and heal... Literally, in that situation, he was healing physical sicknesses. But you can take that metaphorically to heal every situation in your life. If you're discouraged and you need to be encouraged, then find, find verses of, of encouragement. I'll guarantee you, you go back and read Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, Jesus says, or it wasn't Jesus, but Isaiah said, Fear not, for I am with you. God's called us not to fear anything because His presence is always there with us as believers. God and nobody makes a majority. Me and God for sure is a majority. If God's told me to do something, if God showed me in His Word that this is mine, this is who He's made me, this is the anointing He's put on me, and again, it's not an anointing as a pastor, a teacher, a prophet, an evangelist, an apostle. That's not the anointing. It's the anointing of a believer. Are you a Christian? Then you're anointed by God to go into your world and change your world and have an impact on your world. We can go, and, and we're not God, but we can go and, and quote that same verse just like Jesus did because we are His hands. We are His feet. We are His mouth. We can go say, this scripture, this day, the one in, and I've lost it in my thinking now, I can't quote it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. If the Spirit of the Lord was on upon Jesus to do these things, He's on me to do these things. Because I'm one with Him. And my calling is the same as His calling. Why? Because I'm His representative in this world. Not because I stand behind a pulpit, but because I am call on the name of Christ. And I can go and tell people, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me.
You need to tell yourself that. Best thing to do is that's how you need to start your day. Get up every morning instead of saying, Oh my Lord, what kind of problems are going to hit me today? Get out of bed and say, Lord, I thank you. Your spirit is on me today. You have anointed me today. And I'm going to go out and preach the gospel to the poor. And if necessary, I may even use words. It's, it's not always just going out and quoting scripture and preaching at people. Sometimes it's just going out and finding somebody that you know they're down, they're depressed. They're, they're having a hard time and just walking up beside them and saying, Look, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And I'm believing God to just invade your life and make this situation better. You may get rebuked. There may be consequences to it. In our day and age, I, I told several students over the years, I'm praying for you. And sometimes they'd look at me. In fact, every once in a while they'd say it. You realize you could lose your job for doing that? And I always had the same answer. I found that when I found this job, I was looking for a job. If this costs me my job, God will give me another. I'm not worried about my job. What I'm concerned about is you. Because this is obviously troubling you. And I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to stand in the gap for you. Because I love you and God loves you. That, when, you when you reach out to meet people's needs and you know, you, you can start out in faith. But at some point, if you keep quoting that scripture, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. Eventually, you'll begin to believe it. And when you start to believe it, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Suddenly, you start seeing yourself different. Your carriage gets a little more erect. Suddenly, you get a little more bold. What do I have to fear from man? What can man do against me? It's not my life. It's Christ in me. I mean, He died for me. How dare that I'm not willing to die for Him? And it, I don't, I'm not talking about natural death. I'm not talking about being a natural martyr. Although in our world, that's always a possibility too. But let's face it, if, if, if you think, if, if you entertain the thought and think, well, you know, if, if I got confronted like the girl at Columbine, are you a Christian? The guy's got a gun in his hand. If you say yes, he's probably going to shoot you. If you say no, you've just denied Christ. She was bold. Yes, I am. And he shot her, killed her, dead her in a hammer. Well, I, would, I believe I could do that. Really? Can you, can you deny yourself in much less circumstances? Can you be a fool for Christ? Can you go lay hands on someone and, and speak the truth into their life and face their ridicule? Can you stand up in a group and say, I'm a Christian, proudly, because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and He's anointed me. If you can't face a little bit of persecution and humiliation from the world, you're probably not gonna you're not gonna face up to much tougher circumstances. Amen? And that's not a rebuke. That's just saying wherever we are, 
We need to stand up and start progressing. When you have thoughts that go contrary to the world or contrary to the word, you need to stand up. You need to take those thoughts captive and say, no, that's how I used to think. That's not how I'm thinking now. It's not how I'm going to think tomorrow. I'm casting that stronghold down. And then quote that scripture, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach. Well, brother, I don't know that I can get behind a pulpit. I'm not talking about pulpit ministry. I'm talking about everyday life ministry. You go to, you're at Walmart or Kroger's or Von Mar, wherever you shop. And the teller that's checking you out obviously has cold symptoms. Can you just reach over and take him by the hand and say, I want to bless you today and I'm believing that God's going to heal your body right now in the name of Jesus. It doesn't take a 30-minute prayer. Five seconds you can pray, lay hands on somebody and pray for their healing. Don't ask them. Just reach out and take their hand and pray a five-second prayer. Well, what if they get offended? I've offended a lot of people in a lot of worse ways over the years. So why should I worry about offending them with the gospel? But what happens when that person's symptoms, in the next 15 minutes, they dry up? They may never remember me, but they'll remember that a Christian prayed for them. Even if their symptoms don't change, they remember that somebody cared enough to reach out and comfort them. Amen? That's what God's called us to do. That's the identity that we need to have. That verse right there, Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And He is because, He's on me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. All of those are my call because I'm a Christian and I need to preach it everywhere I go. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just come right now before you and I believe, Father, you're going to help each of us to stand in faith, to believe that we can declare that verse over ourselves and walk in, in the anointing that you've called us to as believers in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, and we commit ourselves to believe that and not only to believe it, but to act on it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, just don't worry about communion. So. Gina's got a word here, and then we're going to receive communion. And so much whirling around in me right now I'm not really sure where to begin <clears throat> so I'm just going to begin by faith 
But um, John mentioned in his sermon, Romans 12, 2, which says that we as believers are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The only way that what's on the inside of you will get to the outside of you is the renewing of your mind to his word. That's the only way. The only way you're going to change the way you think up here is by putting God's thoughts into your mind. And it's not, it's, it's work. But it's important. We are to renew our minds. When we got born again, the spirit man on the inside of us, our spirit got instantly changed. Instantly changed. On the inside, we look just like Jesus. Our spirits look just like him. We are brand new. He said we are new creatures. We are old things are passed away. We are not like we used to be. But how many of us, just as he was saying, identify with the old man? And God is saying, that's not you. He wants you to realize that's not who you are. That's not you. So quit looking at yourself according to the old things that are passed away and begin to look at yourself in the light of his word. And the Lord is wanting you to know many of us look at the world and we're losing heart today. We're getting discouraged because we're looking at the world. And he wants to tell you today, quit looking at the world. The world, he said in his word, is going to get darker and darker. That's why you're here. That's why we're here. That's why he left the church here. To take the light that's in you and give it to the dark. You know what? You can be in a cave where there is no light. I've seen this done before. And light just a simple match. And the whole place lights up. It doesn't take a lot of light. Now, what did he say we were? He said, you're the light. He said, you're the salt. You're supposed to be giving the world something that makes them thirsty. You're supposed to be shining before them because they're in a dark world. But that's not you. Quit looking at the world. We are not, we're in this world, but we are not of this world. We are of God. 
And He wants you children to realize, don't look at how bad the word, the world is. But look at what the word of God says. That's who you are. Do you know the word of God says on the outside you're perishing, but on the inside you're being renewed day by day. So what if your outside body's growing old? You're not going to have it when Jesus comes back. The brand new person on the inside's getting a glorified body. We are being renewed every day on the inside. The word says so. So we are not like the world. He says every day his mercies are new. Every morning, every day, we are new. Look to that person. Look to that one. Do you know what he says about the righteous? The, the path of the wicked is dark, but the path of the righteous is like the dawning of the day, and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. So don't look at the world. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at what God's word says. Remember who you are. Because your time is now. Did you think it was a, a mistake? It was a surprise to God that he had you born in this time? No surprise. Of all the ages, he picked us to live now. Because he put something on the inside of us. So that the world now needs. You're ready. You may have things that you need to do and prepare. And when he urges you to spend time with him, get in his word, pray, praise, whatever, do it. But you already are new on the inside of you. You are ready like Jesus. So start acting like that on the outside. Because yes, you are anointed. Ushers, if we could go ahead and come up and <coughs> we're going <coughs> to excuse me, we're going to distribute the elements for communion.
I want us to look at First uh, Corinthians chapter eleven. This is Paul, and um, Paul wasn't at the Lord's Supper. He wasn't at, in the upper room that night, but the Lord delivered to him. And it says in verse 24, Paul was recounting what Jesus told him about that night. And he said, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And this is what Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice his body was broken, but he said, you're not remembering the brokenness. You're doing it in remembrance of me. That's present tense. So we're, we're looking back at the broken body of Christ, but we're looking forward to the resurrected body of Christ. His body was broken, but it's not broken today. It's perfectly healed today in heaven. And in the same way, even though we live in a natural body, a mortal body, it's subject to death. You live long enough, you will eventually die. Unless Jesus comes back. But we still look to His example because He's resurrected, because His body is healed. I can live in health. Why? Because He's perfectly healthy today because of what He did back then. Amen? Take and eat. And in that same night, He said about the cup, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, we're hearkening back to what He did on the cross. His blood was shed. But His blood isn't in the ground outside of Jerusalem. His blood is still alive and it's on the altar in heaven. And in the same way that that, um, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and for justice because Cain killed him, Jesus' blood is alive and it's calling out forgiveness, mercy, cleansing, renewal. His blood speaks. Do it in remembrance of who He is now and what His blood is doing now. Don't bring yourself into remembrance of your sins. Bring yourself in remembrance of His forgiveness. Amen? Take and drink. Father, we thank You that we stand healed, forgiven, blessed, anointed, because you declare that's who we are. And we just believe, Father, as we start a new week celebrating natural things, but Father, more than anything, we want to celebrate newness of life, your life in us. And I just ask for opportunities this week, Father, to preach your gospel, to lay hands on the sick, to, to speak encouragement into people's lives and see their lives changed. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, you're dismissed. Have a great day. Have a good holiday. Be safe with the fireworks, please.